So this afternoon we're looking at the last uh, sort of content of um, James. Next week we have the conclusion where James sort of uh, has his concluding exhortation. But this afternoon we're looking at the last content. I'm not going to put that down there because it'll mess it up. Um, So we've got uh, James chapter 5 verses 1 to 12. Who feels that they can bring that to life in reading? Who wants to do that? Yeah, I'll read it. Okay, Neil. Someone. That's what I do a lot. Okay, do you want to say, nominate someone, Tim? What I usually do is I say, thanks, Rachel, <laughs> for reading it out for us. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's coming. I've, I'm using the NLT, but you can use any translation you want. Okay, so you said James? James, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. All right. James 5, verses 1 to 12. Yep. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible trouble ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honour to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Thanks, Rachel. So <clears throat> back in the early 2000s, this British couple won an astonishing £148 million sterling, which is about $271 million Australian dollars from the uh, Euro Millions jackpot. It's not hard to understand why they're smiling, is it? (laughs) And yet, 15 months, 15 months months later, the husband here was engaged to a girl 16 years his junior, and the wife was living with a car salesman in Scotland. And they were estranged from the rest of their family. What happened? Well, it wasn't from lack of good intentions. They celebrated their win with a nice, humble holiday in a caravan park. But then they started throwing around the money. They bought a huge mansion to live in. 
They gave their siblings huge gifts like $1.5 million to start a business. They bought a nice apartment for their parents in Scotland, for the wife's parents. Um, but their family so quickly grew used to the luxury that they, they asked for more and more. And when they refused, their family said, well, we're not going to have anything to do with you. They were cut off. They were ostracized. What use is a multimillionaire who isn't going to fund my lavish lifestyle, I guess is what the family's attitude seemed to be. And for themselves, their luxurious lifestyle seemed to eat away at who they were. And soon they were living in different countries, England and Scotland. And their marriage had dissolved and they were filling their emptiness with new partners. The scary thing is this experience is not that rare for lotto winners. It's not, of course, the norm, but money, even an astonishing amount of it, is not a solution to the struggles that we find ourselves in. So let's turn now and see how James unpacks this dilemma. For us as Christians. We're almost at the end of James's letter to the 12 tribes in the diaspora or the Jewish Christians scattered throughout, uh, scattered from Jerusalem. And with this last section, before his conclusion, James <coughs> hammers home his point. There are two ways to live. Self-indulgent worldly lives focused on pleasure in the present or loving lives of patient endurance, trusting in Christ and the reality of his future kingdom. James sets up this idea of two ways to go right at the beginning of his book, of his letter. In James, uh, in verses 6 to 8 of the first chapter, he says, But when you ask him, when you ask God, that is, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. He insists that worldly wealth should not influence a Christian in chapter 2. Verse 5, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in him, in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And... James insists that our desires must not control us. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Now, James is hardly alone in these concerns. Much of what he says quotes directly from Jesus' teaching. But Jesus spoke in the Old Testament as well. And he's always been concerned about these issues. 
If you go to Leviticus 19, and I suggest you do afterwards, go to Leviticus 19 and you'll find where James gets his themes from. Leviticus 19 verse 18, which ends the passage on personal ethics, says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James calls this the royal law. So let's see how James unpacks these two contrasting approaches to life. In verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5, James tears shreds off selfish, wealthy landowners. Most shockingly, James says that the wealth that the landowners have hoarded will turn around and destroy them. Their corroded silver and gold will eat away at their flesh like fire, is the way that James puts it. It just sounds ghastly, doesn't it? Just imagine like a gold bracelet eating away at your flesh. And that same pile of rusty metal will condemn them at the judgment when Jesus comes again. So these horrible people, perhaps I shouldn't wave here, but I don't know. I'm sure there's some horrible people there. (laughs) These horrible people have engaged in wage theft, real wage theft, not just getting confused about how complex awards are and getting the awards wrong, real wage theft, and they'll be found out when the judge of the whole world comes again. And the rich that James is portraying here are people who have exploited others for their immediate pleasure. They've hoarded wealth that should have been shared out, not merely out of generosity, but out of justice. They've placed their own comfort before even the lives of those that they deal with, those that they're responsible for. What might be the equivalent of that person, that sort of person today? It seems clear that James is not actually talking about Christians here because he doesn't even ask for repentance. He just criticizes. Now, I don't know about you, but but that sort of person sounds a lot like many of the ultra-wealthy today. People like CEOs who earn tens of millions and are worth billions. And yet, right now, they're busy laying off thousands of people without taking the tiniest pay cut themselves. Or they might take a token pay cut, but they're still worth their billions. They're not sacrificing anything. Or sports stars who earn obscene amounts of money and think the rules don't apply to them, placing people in danger because of their their carelessness. Or yes, even local business owners who are taking every dollar they can get for themselves and doing nothing to protect or care for their employees. Now, I don't think any of us here are like that. But James places this warning to the rich here because their lifestyle is tempting to us. 
We may not be living it now, but what's the reason? If we had the opportunity, would we maybe skimp a bit on someone's conditions in order to get a bit more for ourselves? Self-indulgence like that is a real temptation, right? You can't tell me you don't look at that and you go, doesn't that look beautiful? Wouldn't you like to be sleeping there, maybe? (laughs) Being isolated, perhaps? It's a temptation that surrounds us as citizens of a wealthy nation. In fact, in the 4th century, Basil of Caesarea, one of the great 4th century theologians, said in a sermon, when someone strips a man of his clothes, we call him a thief. And one who might clothe the naked and does not, should not he be given the same name? The bread in your board belongs to the hungry. The cloak in your wardrobe belongs to the naked. The shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot. The money in your vaults belongs to the destitute. All you might help and do not, to all these you are doing wrong. Now Basil might be going a bit too far, but, but these are challenging words that are worth considering, aren't they? In verses 7 to 12 of chapter 5, James then presents his view of the Christian life. He emphasizes the characteristics of the Christian, patience and endurance. For those of us who have been working through the letters to the churches of Revelation on Tuesday nights, these will be familiar. Jesus praises the churches who possess these attributes, and he encourages them to continue in them. So too, James encourages the Christians, probably poor and struggling, to be patient as they wait for Christ's return. He points to the way that farmers don't give up hope in a harvest. Jesus' return is just as certain as fruit ripening or grain growing. Oh, and don't forget, James adds, not to get grumpy with one another even when things seem to be going from bad to worse. Jesus is coming and you will be rewarded, just like Job was. Finally, James says, let's be straightforward. Let your yes be yes and your no be be no. Don't be double-minded. Be authentic and sincere. Now, while we may not be like the wealthy landowners who brutally oppress their employees, neither are we really like the Christians that James wrote to. We're sort of somewhere in between, aren't we? And so... We need to take warning from the fate of the rich, as we already have. But we also must take encouragement from the exhortation to the Christians, 
We too need to be patient. We need to patiently resist the temptation of wealth. We need to patiently continue to place Christ before anything else in our lives. We need to be people who are transparent. When someone asks us to do something or to be something, we either say yes or no. And then we either do it or we don't. Just as Job refused to compromise his understanding of right and wrong and, and to falsely admit to something he didn't do, we too need to be confident about what's right and wrong and unafraid of the consequences of standing up for what's right and wrong. Standing up for what's right and opposing what's wrong. Now on Tuesday night, just past, we looked at how the church in Philadelphia placed obedience to, good, to Jesus' word above everything, even worldly influence. That's what God's expecting of us. That's what God's gift of his spirit is enabling us to do. Even so, it's, it's hard, isn't it? We're all wealthy compared to many of the people in the world. What do we do with that wealth? How do we avoid its corruption burning our flesh like fire? Sounds like something to avoid. At the end of the second century, Clement of Alexandria, in a sermon called Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved, offered this advice. Riches then, which benefit also our neighbours, are not to be thrown away, for they are possessions, inasmuch as they are possessed, and goods, inasmuch as they are useful and provided by God for the use of men. And they lie to our hand and are put under our power, as material and instruments which are for good use to those who know the instrument. In other words, we are stewards of the wealth that God has given us. But we must never let the wealth that we steward take possession of us through our desires. Clement warns, but he who carries his riches in his soul and instead of God's spirit bears in his heart gold or land and is always acquiring possessions without end and is perpetually on the lookout for more, bending downwards and fettered in the toils of the world, being earth and destined to depart to earth, Whence can he be able to desire and to mind the kingdom of heaven? A man who carries not a heart, but land or metal, who must perforce be found in the midst of the objects he has chosen. So let us hold lightly to the wealth that God has given us. Let us ever be ready to share it with those in genuine need. Let us fix our eyes, not on the next enjoyable purchase, but on the next opportunity to love Christ by loving one of his precious image bearers, another human being.
I am, of course, preaching to myself. I struggle with this every day. Temptation is but an online store away, a click away. Pleasures delivered straight to our doors. But Jesus is closer still. His spirit dwells within us and he's waiting for us to turn to him, to ask him to strengthen us. So let's strive to bring Jesus with us whenever we break out the credit card or wallet. Let's think on good deeds we can do rather than good things we can enjoy let's pray dear Lord we know that you have made all things and that you are the giver of all good gifts but we know too that our hearts are in a great struggle we we want what we don't have and it twists and perverts us and yet we know that it's wrong and we don't want that and so we're we're so often trapped in this struggle lord we pray that you would Lift our eyes from from our homes, from our possessions, from our cars, from our jobs, from our, our worldly life. That you would lift our eyes to look to you, to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbours. That you would help us to see these eternal creatures that will outlast all the gold and silver in the world. Help us to see them and to love them and, and, and to take joy in sharing the good news with one another. And so, Lord, as we, as we go into this week, as we go into the world in which we live, as we go into our workplaces, into our homes, help us to go with the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, guiding us, helping us to place each foot in your path so that we can be people who change the world not people who are changed by the world, but people who change the world. Help us to use each dollar that we have in service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.